Please remain standing for scripture. Please hear the word of the Lord from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with whom he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated and let's uh, briefly pray. Oh, gracious God, these blessings are overwhelming if we take time to think about it. And that's what we're trying to do in these few weeks, to think about you, God, in your greatness. Your greatness is, is, is over all things, but particularly as it relates to your lavish grace that you pour out on us. And it's in your perfect wisdom from before the foundation of the world, as you do all things for your glory, that you, in your perfect wisdom, made us and saved us to the praise of your glory. Bless your servant, Pastor Joey, as he comes. May we have ears to hear, to understand your word this day, and to act upon it for your glory through Jesus Christ. Amen. Happy uh, Labor Day weekend to you all. If, um, as, as Pastor Tom said, my name is Joey. I'm one of the lead pastors. I'm excited to be up here and to uh, continue this study in this series we've called Greater as we've looked at specifically the God of the Ephesians. And by that, we don't mean that in Ephesus there was a different God. We just mean that as Paul is explaining who the Christian God is to this very pluralistic uh, very syncretistic city, it became, it, it was obviously very important to describe who God is in detail. This God is different than the gods worshipped in Ephesus, and life with him leads to a different kind of life and a different kind of religion. Uh, so we decided to take a couple weeks to talk about who this God is that Paul brought to the Ephesians. Now, before we jump into that, uh, how many of you have Labor Day weekend traditions? Everyone who has one is not here. I just want to say hello to all of you who are uh, no doubt listening in on the podcast. We missed you, and we know who you are because your seats are empty. So uh, <laughs> we'll see you next week. But our, our annual Labor Day tradition uh, in our family, uh, at least since I've 
John and I have been married, or since a little bit before that, is to go every year to the Midwest Old Threshers Reunion. Midwest Old Threshers Reunion. We make the annual trek to southeast Iowa to Mount Pleasant uh, to participate in the Old Threshers Reunion. When we were first dating, we started dating over the summer, so as Labor Day got closer and closer, I started hearing more and more about Old Threshers, about how going to Old Threshers was going to revolutionize my life, how it was the most amazing, the most fun thing any family could do on Labor Day weekend, how once I got there, I would be completely blown over, bowled over, and absolutely ecstatic about the sheer thousands of antique tractors leaking oil all over the place. (laughs) The smell of steam-powered engines, the smell of diesel engines, the smell of gasoline engines, the history of John Deere and Waterloo Boy and Case International and Why Farm Half, when you can farm all, is all over this place. And uh, I am trying to learn how to enjoy it. Uh, We have... We've missed maybe one or two years, I can't exactly remember. Anna has not missed a year yet, uh, because Jenna's birthday is at the end of August, and so every year, what does she want for her birthday? Old Threshers. So we go. I have not yet figured out the appeal of returning to the same place year after year to see the same tractors, the same antique tractors, the same antique cars, the same antique engines, the same antique farmers. They're all getting together in a reunion to talk about how, how great their old tractors are. Uh, I know I'm offending some of you, and to my wife, I apologize. Um, because I, I, I realized this year that it's really not about the tractors and the farmers and the reunion and all of that. It's just about doing the same thing every year and saying, this is the thing we do. This is the thing in our family that we love. I learned this this year when I... Um, so every year, we eat lunch at the Methodist tent. So there's the Lutheran tent, and there's the Lutheran line, and then there's the Methodist tent, and there's the Methodist line, and the Methodist tent has meatloaf, so we eat at the Methodist tent. Their meatloaf, by the way, free advertisement, one gold ribbon at this year's Iowa State Fair. So they had big signs, um, all hail the Methodist meatloaf. Anyway, for $9, you can get two slices of chicken, uh, a dollop of corn, a dollop of mashed potatoes and gravy, and a roll. And so I said to Jenna and to Jenna's mom, could I please have my $9 and go to the taco truck I saw? <laughs> I, ate, I ate at the Methodist tent. <laughs> it's hard when two different families, family histories, patterns, habits, values get smashed together in a marriage. It's harder still when one of them always has to win at Labor Day every year. But I'm, I'm learning or trying to learn not just to tolerate old threshers. This year I told my father-in-law I, was, I wanted a t-shirt that said antique tractor so I could scribble out the Q-U-E and walk around like, see how long I lasted. He didn't laugh. Um, that, that, that coming together of two different, like I was raised, you know, like this. I told Jenna this morning, it's like, I'm going to talk about old threshers. And the thing is, I love tractors as much as the next guy. And she goes, no, you don't. <laughs> so I was raised where tractors were, I mean, it was, it was not that much of a thing, but her dad bought old ones and restored them. And he's got a GP and a B and I don't even remember what, but we all wear green because we know that's the right color to wear and, you know, the whole thing. So as I, as I kind of, you know, as I became part of this family, 
I had to learn not just to tolerate or pretend to like Old Freshers, but, but to actually love it. I'm not there yet. <laughs> but I'm trying. Every year they promise me I can just go watch the sawmill for as long as I want. And every year, it's a lie. <laughs> anyway, I, I tell that whole story because it brings to light the, the sort of fundamental tension that we experience or that should come to mind when we think about the God who adopts, the God who moves us from one family into another one. And the difficulty that comes from having been raised within one set of habits and values and practices and having to learn a whole nother one. As I said earlier, we've, we're taking a couple weeks to look at these first few verses of the book of Ephesians to learn about the God who is and the God that Paul is explaining to these Ephesians, the Christian God. Uh, if you haven't turned to Ephesians 1 yet, uh, go ahead and turn there. If, if you didn't have a Bible, you didn't bring one, that's fine. Grab that black Bible underneath the seat in front of you. Feel free to take it home with you if you don't have a Bible. That, it's our gift. But uh, Ephesians begins on page 1159 in that Bible, by the way, if you grab it. So you can turn there and you can follow along with us. Uh, because as we've explored this passage so far, uh, we've, we've taken, this is our third week now, of, of just looking at who is God from verse 3. We read, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God is the God who blesses. And then last week, Pastor Tom turned to verse 4 to see and show us and explain how God is the God who chooses, even as, verse 4, even as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. God is the God who blesses. God is the God who chooses. And this week, we keep reading into verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption. God is the God who adopts. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of, of his will, to the praise of his grace, of his glorious grace. It's like a preposition soup right there, isn't it? We don't have time to dig into all of those. So what we're going to do with the time we have this morning is just focus on essentially one word, one concept. What is this adoption Paul is talking about? If you're following along or taking notes or you want to categorize what I'm saying, I basically have three big headings that are just what, so what, and now what. What is this adoption? What is this adoption Paul's alluding to or using as a metaphor for salvation? And so what does that mean? And then now what? What are we going to do with that? What do we do about it now that we've heard and maybe understand this adoption a little bit more? What, so what, now what? Let's just jump right in. What is this adoption? Adoption is, is as a metaphor for salvation, uh, for us especially, it's kind of a, a, um, an emotionally freighted one. Right? When someone says adoption, or we sing like we did earlier, adopted through Christ, our minds immediately go to ourselves, someone we know perhaps who has themselves adopted a child, brought a child into their home. I think immediately of my brother and sister-in-law who adopted a little boy from Poland. 
and now Elliot, Seth, is growing up in their home. He has a new name. He has a new home. He's learning new habits, new ways of living. He has a new mission, a new direction, a new family history that he didn't have before. New possibilities and new rights as a Laird, as a member of the Laird family, and new responsibilities to all of us uh, who are Lairds or connected to that family. And, and the idea that, that Paul has in mind is similar to this, but different in some key ways that I want to take just a minute or two to explore. Now, interestingly, Paul is the only New Testament writer to use the metaphor of adoption to talk about salvation, but, and to use it in kind of a theologically nuanced or developed way. Uh, others, John and others, will, will write and refer to just being sons of God or having been given the sonship or something like that. But P Paul's the only one in three or four different places where he really develops the idea. So even as we're just looking at this in Ephesians 1, I'll, I'll be pulling ideas from a few other of his, his references. And what I think is fascinating is that Paul never talks about adoption. He never uses it as a metaphor for salvation unless he's speaking into a Roman context to Gentile believers living under Roman rule or under the Roman law code. And I think that's important because Rome had an interesting way of thinking about adoption that we don't, we don't tend to think about. Uh, they had, in Roman law, the tradition of adoption, but they only adopted adult males. Uh, nobody adopted babies or young children. Unwanted babies and young children it was a lot easier just to leave them out to die of um, starvation or exposure. That was easier. So that's what happened. It wasn't until much later that Christians reflecting on the fact that everyone has value before God because we're all made in the image of God, uh, these Christians thought, we can't just let this happen, and went and started rescuing babies from the trash heap where they were left. See, Rome only practiced the adoption of adult males. And the reason they did this was because of the family structure. Under Roman law, the father of a house or of a household, uh, which included his children, even if they were adult children, their children, the father of the household had complete and total control. He was called in Latin the father of power, which is what it now says on my door of my office. He was the, the father of power. He had complete and total control over all persons and all property in his household. Uh, such that he could even murder someone in his household and it would not be considered murder because he has the right to. So this, this guy who was, I don't know, large and in charge, this, this guy who was the absolute ruler, could not be contradicted, could not be overruled. And I, some of you are thinking, I grew up in that house. Um, you know what that's like. But when he died... His power, of being the father of power, moved down a generation to his oldest son, to the heir. But what if he didn't have an heir? Then what? Well, since only a guy could be the father, he needed to provide or find a son somewhere, somehow. So a guy who had enough money to uh, secure his own inheritance would adopt someone. So essentially what you have is... Rich guy, money, no son. At least poorer guy, uh, no money, but has a son. Rich guy goes to poorer guy and says, hey, I want to adopt your son. I want to adopt your son, bring him into my family, make him my firstborn son, give him all the rights and privileges that go along with it. 
And to this poorer family, of course, that's seen as a huge social step up. So you can see how that would be desirable. But it didn't just happen. Uh, there was a whole complicated process or procedure that had to be gone through. First, the rich guy would go to the poor guy and say, I'm going to buy your son as a slave. Here's the money. Would buy him as a slave. Son would come into his house as a slave. He would release him. The son would go back to his natural father. A second time, he would go and say, I want to buy your son as a slave. He would pay for him as a slave. Again, he would come into his home. The adopting father would release him. He would go back to his natural father. A third time, the adopting father goes to this family, pays for the son as a slave, and on that third payment, any familial bonds, any legal bonds between the son and his natural father are severed. They're cut. They're gone. And then this young man is, is warmly, sometimes even affectionately, welcomed into his new house where he becomes the firstborn son and where the father assumes complete and total control over him. So he moves into this new household. He assumes a new name, a new identity, a new family history, a new responsibilities now to learn what it means to be a son in this house. How do I live as a son? How do I act as a son of this new family that I've never been part of before? How do I, how do I live into that? How do I learn to even maybe love my new father who's bought me and paid for me? And this son, this now new firstborn son in this swirl of all these new responsibilities and identities um, has the, the right to inherit when his new father dies. He gets to enjoy all the blessings of the household now and sometime in the future control all those blessings himself. He gets to become the father of power when his new father passes away. That's, that's the background enshrined in law and practiced uh, for centuries. That's the background behind this metaphor that Paul is using for salvation. Now, obviously, it's a metaphor. We, don't, we can't push it too far to its very boundaries, but that's the general big idea that's behind it. So when a first-century Ephesian Roman reads this letter and, and hears, in love, God predestined, decided ahead of time that he was going to be adopted to himself as a son, this first-century believer reads this, and they don't necessarily read, oh, that's so sweet. I have a new daddy. No, they read it thinking everything changes. Everything is absolutely new now. If I have been adopted by God, everything's different. My old family ties are broken or at least superseded by my ties now to the family of God. My old family mission has now been cut or at least superseded by the mission of the family of God. Everything about who that person was is subsumed and sort of absorbed into who they are now as a child of God, as a son of God, Paul says. And just as a side note, when he says sons of God, that's not like this is a boys club or boys only, you know, club, get rid of slimy girls. That's not what he's talking about. Uh, he's not talking about the gender aspect of it. He's emphasizing the legal nature of it, that we all adopt, are adopted as sons and daughters of God, but we're all treated as if we are firstborn heirs, firstborn sons in that culture. So just as an FYI. 
Now, that's the, that's the adoption. That's the, the picture underneath that a first century believer reading this would think of. Wow, I've just been, I've been bought and paid for and now have a new father and all the rights and responsibilities and privileges and anxieties that come along with moving into a new home or into a new place, a new identity. And as I, I was sitting down thinking about just this concept of adoption and that background and, and trying to think through what does it mean, what implications does it have for us, um, I came up with a pretty long list that we don't have time to tackle all of this morning. So just a few implications I want to bring out a little bit. If, first, if we have been adopted by God, it means that before we were adopted, we belonged to a different family. Before we were adopted by God, we had a different father. And who that father might be, we can kind of scroll ahead a little bit. You can get up to chapter 2 and read uh, Paul saying that we were at one time following the prince of the power of the air, that the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were by nature children of wrath. Okay, so think this through with me. If we have been adopted, we have moved from an old family to a new one. We know what the new one's like. That's what all the rest of Ephesians is about. Hey, new family, this is the way the new family operates. But what about the old family? That old family we were part of, we were called children of wrath, sons of disobedience. And in that family, we had a different father, we had a different identity. We had a different family. We had a, di a different mission or direction in life. We had different habits, different values. We were a completely different person in that family. But now we've been moved. We've been adopted. Which means if we think of the gospel through the lens of adoption... It means we have been chosen, yes, chosen to be adopted, but not chosen because of anything that we bring to the table. And if you do a survey of folklore, mythology, you're going to find all sorts of different stories of you know, rags to riches or like pauper to prince stories where the king adopts someone. Uh, the, the one that came to mind for me was the, the beggar king. You may have heard this particular story, but I'll just give it to you quickly. In this one... Uh, a king finds himself without a son, without an heir, and needing to secure the future of the kingdom, he puts out advertisements saying, wanted a son. I will adopt a man who is full of virtue and loves humanity. Now, in this kingdom, there was a young beggar who thought, I have nothing else going for me in my life. I might as well give this a shot. So he worked for months and months to save up enough money to buy a brand new set of clothes. And having washed himself and put on this fresh set of clothes, he began walking towards the castle to apply in person to be the king's son. But on the way, he came across a beggar clothed in rags sitting on the side of the road. And thinking to himself, I've been where this man was. I am no better than this man. I just have a nicer set of clothes on. Uh, he had pity on the beggar and exchanged outfits with him. You take my clothes, I'll take yours. And now thinking to himself, well, there's no way they're going to let me in to even see the king now. He says, well, I might as well give it a shot and conti continues to walk to the castle. Uh, where, to his surprise, he's let in, he's ushered into the throne room, and there, standing before the king, he sees, seated on the throne up in front of him, a man 
you saw this coming, wearing the clothes he had just purchased for himself. And in the story, the king steps down off his throne, comes to the young man, embraces him, and calls him my son. And that's a real feel-good story, right? The story that if you just, if you have virtue, eventually someone will recognize it and reward you for it. But it is, it's not the gospel. And here's why. That story and the others that have that similar theme uh, all assume that the person who is eventually chosen to be the king's son or to be the king's daughter is a person of high and exceptional virtue. And when that virtue is recognized by the king, it motivates the king to choose that person over and above all the other competitors, all the other potential sons. But Paul is telling us that when we were adopted, we weren't sons of mediocre obedience or children of minor anger. He says, we were sons of wrath. We were children of disobedience. He's saying, look, there was nothing in us to cause God to choose us. There was nothing in us to make God go down the list and go, I'm going to pick you, like this is a schoolyard game of dodgeball. There was no, when he lined us up, we were all children of disobedience, all sons of wrath, all equally lost, all equally in need of a Savior, none of us better than any other. What that means is if you, if you can't honestly look at yourself and say, I have no idea why God chose me, then you don't yet get this point. If you, can't, if you can't look at yourself without thinking, you know what, it must be because he knew I'd be such a darn good preacher up here. That's why he chose me. Or it must be because he knew I was going to make a lot of money and be able to give it to his causes. Or if, if you're looking at yourself thinking, well, it must be because you know, he knew I was going to be such a nice person. Or I already was. I'd worked so hard to be such a nice person, so he chose me. None of that is the gospel. All of that is us saying and looking around like, huh, I'm such hot stuff, God couldn't wait to adopt me. Which is not what this passage is saying at all. This passage is saying we were dead, is the metaphor, another metaphor Paul uses. We were dead until God chose us. And when things are dead, it's not like there's a better dead and a worse dead. Like, they're all dead. There was no reason for God to choose you over someone else. There was no reason for God to choose me over someone else. Which means, as those of us whose lives have been captured by the gospel, it means we cannot look at anyone around us and think, I'm better than them. I know we do it. I know I do it. I know it's ingrained in me, and it, it just comes to me naturally. There are people I look at and think, well, obviously I'm better than them. I'm better dressed than they are. I'm better shaved than they are. I have better haircut than they do. I can talk better than they can. Whatever. There's an endless list of ways for me to compare myself to other people. But what the gospel does when it sinks in is it tells us that you are no better than anyone else. Having been adopted, moving from this family where we all were into this family where we were chosen by God based on nothing we brought to the table is one of the most humbling things you can realize about yourself. You were not chosen because, because God just couldn't wait to get you in his family. You were chosen, Paul says, because of God's mercy. 
because of God's love. You were not chosen. I was not chosen because of who I am. We were chosen by God because of who God is. Tom talked about that more last week. If you didn't hear it, uh, I think you should go back and take a listen on the podcast. That's one implication of just thinking through this adoption, having moved from one family to another. Why were we moved? We were chosen by God simply out of his love and his mercy. But a second implication to think through uh, about this adoption is that if we have been moved out of this old family into this new one, we have been moved much closer to God, closer to God than we even deserve or than makes sense to us. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher, mid-19th century, wrote a bunch, he was kind of the father of existentialism, wrote a bunch of stuff that is hard to understand. Um, I don't understand it, but there's some stuff in there that I've managed to, to pick through a little bit. And in his book, The Sickness Unto Death, he tells a, a parable about a peasant and the greatest emperor who ever lived. Probably sensing a theme in my stories here. He tells about this, this poor peasant who would not, for any reason at all, assume that this emperor had any idea that he existed. Okay, which makes sense, right? A, a day laborer or a peasant out in the fields has no reason to think that the emperor of the greatest nation that ever was had any idea that he existed at all. And, and so this, this peasant, his one dream in regards to this emperor is just to see the man walking by in person. He says, if I could just see this guy walk by once... That would be the, the, the most amazing event of my life. He would tell it to his kids and to his grandchildren as the most important thing that had ever happened to him. But the way Kierkegaard tells the story then, he says, now imagine the emperor sent word to this peasant saying, I want to make you my son. How would the peasant respond? Uh, Kierkegaard supposes the peasant would respond like this. Quite humanly, the peasant would be more or less puzzled, self-conscious, and embarrassed by it. He would, and this is the humanness of it, he would humanly find it very strange and bizarre, something he would not dare tell to anyone, since he himself had already secretly concluded what his neighbors near and far would busily gossip about as soon as possible, that the emperor wanted to make a fool of him, to make him the laughingstock of the whole city. So the peasant reflects, he's like, what I would much rather have from the emperor is maybe a little bit of money or a nice letter of commendation I can put on my wall. Uh, people around me would understand that. They wouldn't understand me becoming his son. He says, such a thing is too high for me. I cannot grasp it. To be perfectly blunt, to me it is a piece of folly. What Kierkegaard is getting at is to be brought into a relationship with the mightiest emperor who ever lived is too close. It's too much closeness. To become the son of a king like that, it's too close. To, to do that requires me to completely let go of who I am, my past identity, everything that made me me, I have to let go of and get rid of in order to move into this exalted uh, position of being a son of the king. One author writes, Adoption by the king is such a radical notion, we resist it. We would rather have the occasional brush of God's presence or a relic of his solidarity with us so that God can be an appendage to our identity. You know, like when you take a selfie with a celebrity after a concert or something like that, it's not about them, that's about you saying, look at this person who stood next to me. 
It's an, it's an appendage onto your own identity, bolstering your own identity. But, but, by, but God, by bringing us into this new reality of a relationship with him through the Spirit, through Christ, he, God wants more than that, more than to just be an appendage. He wants to be our identity. He wants our lives. He wants our, adopt, our, our adopted identity. He wants us to lose our lives for the sake of finding them again in communion with the triune God through Christ. See, God is calling us by saying we're adopted. God is calling us to live into a new identity as sons and daughters of God. To, in a sense, crucify our old identity and who we were and crucify all of our quests for self-made significance and satisfaction for making a name for ourselves and instead find our name in him. See, adoption, especially in this context when we're talking about a God of, uh, with infinite blessings who does not need heirs, he already has one, his son, Jesus, who does not need heirs, only out of love and mercy chose to adopt us. When we're talking about a God like that, it means that adoption is a legal thing as we are declared members of a new family, uh, but it's also a love thing, a loving thing. We've been adopted out of death and given a new identity that is as absolutely exalted as any we will ever obtain. And given that reality, how can we not love the one who's rescued us out of slavery to death? See, adoption is a legal thing, but it comes with some very practical things. No good parents would ever adopt an infant and then not take that infant home with them. And God does not adopt us and, without inviting us into his home giving us the new rights and responsibilities of being firstborn heirs of his, but also giving us the opportunity to live in and with the triune God so that we can become more like our older brother, Christ. And we can become more like, we, we can become indeed what, what we already are in fact. We can learn how to be sons and daughters of God. One author writes that Christians are not adopted into a low-commitment relationship with a conveniently distant God. We are not adopted to God the Grandfather, who can spoil us and then send us home. We're adopted to God the Father, who wants to call us his own. C.S. Lewis writes in his Reflections on the Psalms that a vocation, a calling, a vocation is a terrible thing. A vocation is a terrible thing. To be called out of nature to the supernatural life is a costly honor. But it's the honor to which we've been called, the honor of being sons and daughters of God. A costly honor, not without a price. Calling us to forsake everything in our old family so that we can be made anew in the identity that we've been given as sons and daughters of God. Well, now what? We've talked about what adoption is and what implication that has for us. Well, now what are we supposed to do with it? Uh, in just the few minutes that we have left, I want to think through a few, a few quick thoughts in terms of application. 
Uh, one is this. We don't, we don't learn how to become like Jesus by asking ourselves what Jesus would do in any given situation we find ourselves in and then trying to do that so that we can copy his ethics. Uh, that, that is helpful, but it's only helpful to the extent that trying to act like Jesus gives us a picture into how to love like Jesus. To become a son or daughter in this new family is to learn to love and value the things that this new family values. It's to learn how to become, in practice, what we are in fact, just like the other members of this family. So we look to our older brother, we look to Christ, we learn how to live life with him so that by watching him love, watching him respond to people, we can learn not just to do those same things, but to love those same ways so that it becomes our habit to respond in the same way Jesus did. We also surround ourselves with other people who are trying to do the same thing. I mean, that's why we get together for worship on a weekly basis, not just to tell ourselves again and again this story of who we are in Christ, who our new identity is, but also so that just like in, you know, in a marriage, um, Jen and I would have never argued over Old Threshers if we had not gone to Old Threshers together, right? It's the exact same way. There is so much in me, there is so much in each of us that needs to be sanctified, that needs to be sanded off and softened, and that will only happen when we're bumping up against each other. Which is why when we, when we have the foundation of being sons and daughters of God, we can look at one another and say, this is where I screwed up. And extend to one another the grace and the forgiveness and the conversation that comes with being brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of God. Because we need one another to run up against in order to find out where we still have parts that Jesus wants to work on. That's what it means to be a son or daughter of God. In short, just to put it simply, we learn to live as children of God by living with others with the Son of God. We learn how to become what we already are when we together live with the Son of God. God's only natural-born son, Jesus. It's in doing that that he forms us into what we already are, as I've said, the sons and daughters of God. Now, we just have a couple minutes left, and so as I, as I wrap this all up and bring it to a close, um, this is your cue to wake up, because the last thing I say is the one thing I want you to remember. If you forget everything else, that's fine. This is what I want you to keep in mind. One last implication of being adopted. If we are adopted by God, that means it cost God something to adopt you. If we are adopted by God, it cost him something. Just as a Roman father had to buy his new son out of slavery, three times no less, before he was legally adopted, so God had to buy us out of slavery to our old father, so that we could become his legal sons and daughters. If you look down just a little bit to verse 7, we read, In him, in Jesus, we have redemption. Redemption, that's, that's the buyback price. That's the what's it going to cost me to get it back. Redemption, we have the buyback price. We have redemption paid through his blood, which gives us the forgiveness of our trespasses. 
God chose us, children of wrath, sons of disobedience, with no with nothing that made him want to choose us other than his own love and mercy. He chose us to become his own sons and daughters. But it was not a thing that could just happen like that. It's a movement from one family to another that comes at a price, and it came at the price of his own son. A price that Jesus, at infinite cost to himself, was willing to pay. The gospel tells us in the big picture storyline of the whole Bible, the, God, the gospel tells us that, that God desiring sons and daughters to share in his inheritance. By the way, the only inheritance, this is the only setup where you have a father with an infinite inheritance who will never die and you get to enjoy all the inheritance now. It doesn't happen anywhere else. God, with all of the spiritual blessings he had in the heavenly places in Christ, said, I want to make sons and daughters to, to bless, to enjoy this with. So he made us. We were children of the true king, but children who wanted to make a name for ourselves. We didn't want his. We didn't want his name. We didn't want his identity. We wanted our own. So we rebelled against our loving father and sold ourselves into slavery to death and despair. But we were made by a father who loves us so much, he was willing to buy us back out of that slavery, even though it cost him his one and only naturally begotten son. But we sang it earlier, because Jesus was willing to pay that price, we who by our own choice became orphans, wandering without a home, we're allowed to come home to our true home, to our true father, in whose family we can finally become what we were meant to be, truly human, no longer enslaved to ourselves. Life with the Son of God grows us into sons and daughters of God. What we were meant to be what we threw away, and what God bought back. That's the gospel of the God who adopts. Father, as we've spent a few moments just thinking about this adoption, who you are, who we are in relation to you, what you've done for us, how you have drawn us out of slavery to our Father, the slavery to ourselves, our slavery to the devil, our slavery to the princes of the power of the air, our slavery to these idols we worship, hoping to give us a name. You have bought us out of that. You have made us your sons. You have made us your daughters. You have given us the right to inherit all the blessings that you own. You have made us a family. You've brought us together, given us a new direction, a new name now we are yours. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of the one who willingly gave up his life for ours. Amen. We are all children of God, not because of anything that we have done, but because of God's grace to us. And, and that being adopted together means that we're a part of a family. And uh, just like any family, we try to love one another, uh, we disagree about things, we hurt each other, we try to forgive together, uh, we try to grow together. Grace makes it safe.
for us to acknowledge where we've gone wrong. It makes it possible for us to, to forgive and learn from what we've done wrong and, and go forward together because we need each other, because we, we belong together. And that's important to hold to, especially after an unusual week that we've had. Uh, so as, as we come to this Lord's table, we want to spend a little more time in kind of reflection and, and prayer this morning. You know, last Sunday we had scheduled a business meeting to vote on a candidate for our pastor of student ministries. And uh, leaders who had spent significant time with James uh, came to the conviction that there just was not a good alignment there about what it means to be and how we live out being winsome and informed ambassadors to our culture, along with a, you know, a couple of other things, nothing major, but... Uh, we got together to discuss that, the elder executive team, and we announced the decision in the end of second service that we weren't going to be extending an offer of employment to James. And um, we couldn't go forward with bringing him on staff because of some of the just alignment questions that we had. And we spent a lot of last week then uh, in our business meeting uh, and then afterwards talking with uh, the search team who, who wasn't able to be a part of that process to, to meet with the rest of the elder board, to meet with the student ministry team, to meet with youth and, uh, and to listen to them because this is not a closure to that process. We want to keep listening. We want to keep praying. We want to keep seeking and hearing from you all and, and trying to grow together and understanding what went wrong, where we went wrong, and, and how we can do better together. Some people are okay with what happened with last Sunday. Some have expressed even uh, gratitude. Some are confused. Many, uh, many of us, probably all of us, are disappointed that we don't have a pastor of student ministries. Some are specifically disappointed that it's not James. Some people have had their trust in the church leadership shaken. Some people are angry and hurt. And, and Grace says it's okay. It's okay that we're in different places, that, that grace gives us the freedom to, to disagree, to have honest discussion about that. Grace does not push people to say, well, you need to feel this way, and, and you need to feel it now. Grace gives us space to, to heal, to encourage, to listen, to grow together. And one of the things that we want to do first is to just take some time privately right now to, to pray for grace to love each other well in all those different places that, that we are in this process. And, and maybe even confess to God the ways that we haven't even done that well this last week. Can we do that? Let's just take some time to, to pray that God would help us listen and love well. Father, we confess that we struggle to really listen to each other to really love the way that you have loved us. We confess that sometimes we just want people to agree with us, and, and we don't want to have to go through the hard part of listening and learning. And God, we pray that you would forgive our pride, forgive our impatience, help us to give grace to each other, to humbly listen, to really live out the reality that we need one another. Help us to grow together in love, we pray in Jesus' name. One of the things that has been pointed out and kept coming up in a lot of different conversations uh, is that we probably just need to take more time to pray together more. We have a lot going on. I mean, not just in terms of ordinary ministry, but a lot of big decisions, big transitions, things that, that we're trying to do that we think God has called us to, but, 
you know, one of the downsides of, uh, you know, having an educated and, uh, you know, successful church and, and people that are wise and godly is, you know, even in that, we can tend to just get going because we figure we know what needs to be done and not take time to really slow down and listen to God. And this is, this is not the end of that process at all. We recognize that we really need to be spending more time together intentionally praying for all the things that, that we think God is calling us to do. But let's just take some time now to maybe confess to God the ways that we have all tended to run ahead of him uh, and not take time to listen and to pray for his wisdom and guidance. God, we do thank you for gifts and wisdom and knowledge and experience and maturity, but Father, we can honestly see how sometimes that ironically ends up making us independent of you and, and we run ahead and we trust in all those things instead of listening to you and, and I think we can all acknowledge that we don't pray enough, we don't ask enough. God, humble us that, that we would seek your face, that we would slow down to listen to your voice because we need you and we want to be guided by you. Pray in Jesus' name. Father, um, we, we come acknowledging as well that uh, many of us are hurting for the no let. Some, some of us are hurting personally uh, along with them, and, and many are, again, disappointed and hurt that we still don't have a youth pastor. And, and, and then we recognize there are a lot, a lot more pains and hurts beyond that, some within our own congregation, uh, in our nation. I mean, there, there are thousands of people suffering the consequences of, of floods and hurricanes and and we want to take time to pray for hearts of compassion and hands that reach out to people who are hurting. Can we do that? Let's just take a moment to, to pray for that. Father, thank you that you meet us in all our brokenness and need and we pray that you would soften our hearts to those who are hurting. We pray for James and Tanya and their kids that you would bring healing and hope and, and guidance and direction for them. We, we pray that for ourselves. Lord, we, we pray that you would give us tender hearts and uh, hands and voices and, and lives that run to those in need to, to pour out compassion and grace and healing. And Father, would you do that through us? God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have failed to do. We haven't loved you with our whole heart. We don't love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. Father, help us. Give us the grace to be sorry, to, to humbly repent. We thank you that because of Jesus, we know your mercy and your forgiveness. So, Father, bring us again to this table with gratitude, with humility, with joy, with confidence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.